ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. And this week on the Ascend podcast is a really powerful conversation. This one, I don't say this lightly on the podcast, but this one really is a special one, in my opinion. It's with a lady called Jay Griffiths. She is a formidable author, and it's somebody who I've wanted to have a conversation with for a long time now. She is somebody who has wrote many award-winning books, She's the author of many incredible titles, but in particular, two of the books which were of interest to me and in which I wanted to talk about in this conversation, which we did, is a book in particular called Wild, which is basically the result of her long journeys among indigenous cultures, including staying with the Amazonian shamans, the Inuit people, visiting the sea gypsies. She also stayed with the freedom fighters of West Papua Guinea. And basically that book explores um, the words and meanings which um, sort of shape the ideas of wilderness, arguing that the wilderness is sort of an intrinsic um, part of the health of the human spirit. So that one is obviously a really cool book. And she also wrote another fascinating book which we talked about in this one called Pip Pip which is basically a book that explores the political nature of time and illustrates some of the sort of the diverse ways in which indigenous cultures perceive time, which is obviously a fascinating topic which we definitely dive into. But it really is a cool one, this. And like I said, it is a special one. And I don't say that lightly, but it really is. And in sort of how this podcast came about, it really was... um, sort of a minefield of ups and downs and what I mean by that is that sometimes guys obviously when I do these conversations you just sort of see the end product but it was a really interesting conversation and it's funny how everything in the end does work out but initially before this conversation took place what happened was is I had a time set uh, set up with Jay to record this podcast and for some reason, something happened, and we couldn't make this one happen. But I had make this one happen. But I actually stayed up for about, I think I was waiting around for maybe four or five hours, just waiting around uh, for Jay because she was she got delayed. And in the end, we ended up. I stayed up till I think it was maybe ten o'clock or eleven o'clock at night after already doing maybe five and six podcasts and being up since very early in the morning. But I waited around and wanted to get it done. For some reason, it didn't happen. So I ended up thinking in my head oh no I'm not going to get this podcast done and I really wanted to talk to Jay she was one of the number one people that I did want to speak to at the Britain convention and anyway the next morning I kindly persuaded her if she could make um, make 40 to 50 minutes available to do a powerful podcast and and I'm so glad that she did she made time in a schedule she literally had about 40 30 40 to 50 minutes spare be- just before a train 
and we made this podcast happen. So I'm so grateful for Jay for making it happen and allowing allowing me to dive into her journeys because she really is somebody who I've wanted to speak to for a very long time. I know you're going to love this one. It really is a powerful one. And just before I dive in with this conversation, I just wanted to mention about the Ascend podcast retreat. If 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 you feel in your heart that this is something that you want to do, all you need to do is go to the Ascend podcast website and check out the page. All the details are on there. It really is going to be a cool um a cool experience. And it's going to be an experience that I know that you'll never ever forget if you do come to this thing. Some of the uh, some of the um things that we're uh, things that we're going to be doing is honestly going to be on another level. We have mindfulness practices, we have conscious dreaming practices, we have nature hikes, shamanic meditation ceremonies, and many more group activities too. It's going to be an absolute amazing experience. There's a hot tub there if you want to use that. There's going to be optional yoga. And this thing, this yoga retreat as well, the way that I've set it up, it's not something that, it's more just something that we, where we can all get together, we can all just hang out in, in, a, in such a beautiful environment and partake in some very interesting activities. Nothing is on a schedule, I promise you that. I know I've seen other retreats in the past where they have a certain um, itinerary of things that you have to do. Everything is going to be optional. There's going to be no structure. If you want to lie in bed for an extra hour, that is absolutely fine. If you don't want to do yoga, that is also absolutely fine. This is something that's going to be very flexible. It's basically just giving all of us guys a foundation to hang out, have a good time. And in the process, there is going to be optional activities and optional um, practices for you to sort of to sort of go deep down the rabbit hole in your own selves. So I hope you will check it out. Really looking forward to seeing all you guys there. It really is going to be an exceptional experience. It's in the south of France from the 1st to the 8th of September 2020. So I hope to see you there and I hope that you check it out. So anyway, I know you're going to love this conversation. Enjoy with Jay Griffiths where we dive into some very powerful topics and I'm sure you will get I'm sure you will get the same vibes from this conversation in the same feeling that I got after I recorded this one. So I hope you enjoy it. Peace out. start this because like I said you have always wanted to have a conversation with you for a long time I came across uh, two of your books I think the book called is it the book that's called wild isn't it yeah. such a um, fascinating book that as well and I think that that sort of topic it really does sort of within me anyway it sort of it ignites something with inside of myself thinking in me own self like I want to do that I think that's so cool what was the sort of the I mean could you describe the just describe the process and the journey that you went through with sort of visiting all these different remote tribes and things and these people across across the world what it was for me was um, um, first of all as you say it for yourself it was a sense inside me that um, there is something wild in the human spirit that so much of modern life crushes um, and it imprisons the spirit you know we imprison our children in effect um, and we also require of ourselves a sort of sense of being controlled by Captain Clock and controlled by um, 
a whole kind of um, greying force. Um, neoliberalism, debt, um, the sense that the built environment is the only place where most of us live. And that feeling of um, an urgent need to be free and a curiosity about wildness and wild places. But it was also um, a very political beginning in the sense that what I felt was um, that so many times when people write about wilderness and wildness, it's quite often Americans and Europeans who storm off all over the world and kind of declare that places that they're walking across are wildernesses and wastelands. And they don't ask the people who live there what they feel and what that land means to them. So from the beginning, I wanted it to be something where um, the voices of the indigenous people who call those wild places home um, that that would come into it and inevitably and properly that it shouldn't just be about the kind of the poetry of it and the um, and, and, and the beauty of it but also the politics of land rights of genocide of resource extraction because it seems to me that um, that if you as a writer um, if you just take the kind of you know the feathers and the quotes from Chief Seattle and all the rest of it then that's quite exploitative um, if it's the poetry only if it's the politics only it becomes unreadable because most people simply can't read a book full of um, difficult things and bad news um, so what I wanted to do was to write something which which contained both of those things and you certainly did that and you definitely did that and something I wanted to, an area how long did you do this for was it was it this journey or was it seven years you said writing the book took seven years yeah. how long was the journey of sort of visiting all the different well what I did was um, before I went on each trip I did a lot of research and a lot of thinking a lot of planning and then I went on the journeys and then I came back so I went on one journey and then came back and went on and then prepared another went came back um, so when I say seven years that was the journey which included the journey in the library it included the journey right. of actually making those journeys into um, a, into written form what were some of the could you describe some of the cultures that you did come across through your journey the um, one of the cultures that had the most impact on me was um, Papua, West Papua. And one of my reasons for going there was because um, I wanted to make sure that in that book there were, that, that it reflected a sense of the gift culture, that I couldn't just take the knowledge and experience of indigenous people. I had to put something back. And because West Papua at that point, probably Brazil now, but at that point West Papua was a place where indigenous cultures were being most fiercely attacked um, for half a century of a genocide. And it was one of the most extraordinary places I've ever been, not least for the landscape and the, um, the vibrancy of it. Um, and also actually not least for the pain um, the kind of suffering but because the spirit of Papuan people is 
completely irrepressible. They sing everywhere. They make songs up as they go. They kind of that when we were walking around um, the uh, in the Highlands um, for several days, that quite often the guides I was with, they just make up songs of the journey. And some of the songs were really funny. It was like one time when. Uh, they were singing this song and some of the young guys about 17 or something and 17 years old and uh, and they just couldn't stop giggling and I said what's that what, what was it? what were the words there and they said we met the girls in grass skirts today where hey and <laughs> yeah. then they just blushed and giggled <laughs> and then some of the songs were um, were the kind of like the traditional songs of the mountain the other thing in in West Papua that that is immensely moving given everything that's happened, is how much people laughed. And that especially when people knew that they were going to fall over laughing, they would lie down first. And that the, there were these little kind of like scenes that, that stick in my mind forever. Like one of the guys, one of the young ones, decided at one point after lunch to climb up a little tree and go to sleep. And so his friends, friends, um, made a bonfire underneath the tree so he kind of was woken up with smoke in his eyes thinking he was like being burnt out by his, by his own friends and that sense of that you know not that life is a joke but that that the impulse to sing the impulse to laugh carries on in spite of everything this is powerful yeah that is really powerful I mean, because obviously as a culture now, we know that we don't really have that sense of, I mean, that, that to be honest with you, what you're trying to explain there, that that sense that you're trying to, that's probably beyond language, that feeling that you're getting from them people is, it's probably something that, that probably to me oneself as well, I can't really understand because the cultural, cultural systems with, that we live in sort of dictate that, that laughter and dictate that humor about yeah. society in general. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well as how did, how did this actually journey unfold for you? Like, how did it start? I mean, did you just one day just decide, I'm just going to go and do it? Or did you do some research? Or what well, was the journey like? Actually, it's, it was a journey that began um, because I was um, very, very seriously depressed. Um, and I s- suffer quite badly from depressions. And, um, and I was in the middle of a really killing episode killing appropriately because I was very suicidal and then I got a phone call from an anthropologist who I didn't know anthropologist called Jeremy Narby I didn't know him but I knew his work and he knew mine and um, we were just we had been in contact briefly and then he phoned up one morning and said um, quite casually how are you and I said I'm drowning I, I was in so much pain and he said, um, do you want to come with me to visit the Ayahuascaros, the um, shamans who use ayahuasca um, in the Peruvian Amazon? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to think about it? It's like it's a big trip. But it's kind of, you know, it's quite something to, to, to do this. And I said, no, I don't want to think about it. I'm with you. I'm doing it. And so I went um, actually very unprepared and very vulnerable and very much in need and to use ayahuasca as a medicine. Um, And what I found when I was there, the first thing to say is that it was unbelievably curative. Um, It's such a powerful antidepressant and it lasted for years, the effect of of that um, time with shamans. 
But it also opened up to me a whole sense of um, how we know things, who we are and how we know things, we humans. Um, that that sense that um, a lot of people say of kind of nature connection that ayahuasca gives you, but that sense also of deep humility that life happens to be popping up at the moment in me and in you as you sit here. Um, but the same life force is what animates the monkey and the flower and the snake and the beetle and the utter sacredness of that life force and the trees of the Amazon, plants of the Amazon. And so it became something um, way, way bigger than me. And it also became something which was um, like a... Um, a way of being shown my path or re-shown my path because the um, the thing that many people say about ayahuasca it shows you your path and that my path has always been to be a writer but when you're really depressed you can't do anything and when I was there what I felt I was being taught is you have to write about this this beautiful vivid teeming forest and the way that it is being destroyed both the poetry and the politics so then, so then, from obviously that's a powerful, obviously inspiration. You're gonna, it's gonna obviously propel you onto something else. What was the next place that you went to after that? What was the first place after that experience? What was the next place that you chose to go to? The, um, I went to um, I went to Australia and I spent time with indigenous cultures oh, and communities in um, Central Australia. And that also was kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel there. I was kind of going in the need that, you know, that I was in, um, in the Amazon. But what I really wanted to do again was to, you know, to look at this absolutely shocking way that, um, that Europeans have gone to Australia and declared it a wasteland because they couldn't read the book of the landscape. But indigenous Australians can and do and still do. And that sense of kind of the, um, the life force underground, so the you know the the jang d j a n g, that is used by some uh, um, indigenous Australians, the energy in the land, and the importance of leaving that energy underground, which of course is kind of you know it that has a, um, a, a an absolutely perfect it is a perfect metaphorical rendition of what we're doing when we take resources out of the land that we're destroying the life of the land and indeed as we know much more um vehemently now um we're risking killing ourselves we're, we're risking this mass extinction that we're in which includes the human that wasn't something that anybody could have said at that point when i when i was there the signs were starting to show now we can really see it I love that, that that feeling that you described, that sense. I completely understand the sense that you described that then people have, that understanding of the land. Do you think that we, I mean, it's clear to say that we're losing that. I mean, we've lost that sense of what is secret, or sacred yeah. and what is not. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, I kind of, um, in one sense, I'm I'm slightly uneasy with the idea that, um, that, it, that there's a them and an us and that you know that that they know and we don't but I think that what matters is that um, 
that I think we can find a sense of the indigenous human being and that that is nothing to do with the vile kind of bigotry and racism as certainly in Britain it's kind of been presented, you know, the indigenous Briton um, who must repel all kind of, you know, refugees and, and foreigners is, is repugnant to me. But that sense that, um, that, that, that we belong to the earth and that we need to protect or each of us to protect the patch of earth that we are on. That's really powerful. And that is a universal thing. Yeah, definitely. What was, what was the next culture you went to? Did you, because I know the, the sea gypsies, they're interesting, um, because I know that I've heard rumours now that they actually the, the modern day world has actually taken a toll on their culture. I don't know if you know about that now, but a lot of the sea gypsies are actually having a transition into modern day life, which I think is an interesting thing. That's such a common pattern yeah. it's such a common pattern i mean one of the things where you've got fishing communities like the sea gypsies is that that when globally fish stocks are so depleted is that 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 people will people are having to turn to other ways to find food to make a living um but i think that this that that sense of kind of the extinctions that we're in is also a cultural extinction or cultural extinctions. It's also an extinction of wisdoms. It's an extinction of languages. It's an extinction of whole ways of knowing. And this idea that the dominant culture has that it consists, can insist that its way of knowing is the only one is false and ugly and hideously destructive. Did you, did you when you had interactions with, I know you've visited many different um, sort of indigenous cultures, did you, like I've just described there, the sort of the transition, because it's clear to see that I'm not sure if this, well, it probably would have been happening. The Monday world was creeping in and it was sort of altering their sort of their whole lives. Did you ever get any sort of, did you ever, did they, the people themselves transcend uh, their feelings across of that process and how it's impacting their lives? Yes, you, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the kind of, you know, the, um, the anger that, um, that a lot of people feel, the, um, um, the sense of, injustice of bewilderment the kind of and particularly in places where um the effects have come suddenly um and for, like for inuit people for example that um they were basically forced off their land in one very particular sense which was that they were forced to send their children to school which meant that cultures had to settle which meant that all sorts of Inuit knowledge which is about traveling it is about moving across the land and knowing how to move across the land that that knowledge was lost within a generation so people who um, are now 50 and under quite often don't have that knowledge the elders still do um, but not having that knowledge means that that they that, that for a lot of them they're really horribly trapped um, in quite often these um, sort of settlements which are really um, unpleasantly overheated was how they were quite often described to me that, um, that, that it was dangerous to go out across the land if you don't have the knowledge of the ice it is dangerous um, so that meant that for a lot of people they had to basically kind of stay in school indoors um, and then that there was a kind of sense of crazed incarceration for for a lot of people and the suicide rates for young indigenous people is catastrophic 
is there is there any sort of um particular sort of lesson or moment throughout this whole sort of journey that's or some sort of inter, um, interaction with a certain indigenous culture that's because like i said you've you've obviously you've 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 sort of been steeped in this you've you've met many different types of cultures but is there anyone in particular that sort of a lesson or something that you that that still permeates through yourself now from the time visiting them of all the different cultures i think um I think a lesson of, um, in a personal sense, um, a lesson of deep responsibility is that um, when, for myself, when I kind of, um, when I see the way that um, a lot of tourism, for example, um, uses indigenous cultures and thinks that because it's giving money, that that's enough, um, but it isn't giving intellectual respect, um, and it's also not making the um, the link between how our culture behaves and how the how the dominant culture behaves that impacts so horribly on indigenous cultures, and that link is really important. I mean, that's you know one of the many reasons for me why um, you know because I've never felt that I can speak for indigenous cultures is not my place you know my job is to be a messenger i've always felt that it's to listen on one side speak on the other um and one of the things that that at the moment that i feel in that role and that really stays with me is that um that that we have to rebel you know what i'm going to say i know what you're going to say i feel it within yourself absolutely have got to rebel we've got to rebel for our own sakes we've got to rebel for the sake of the future we've got to rebel against all that has happened for hundreds of years against these deadly philosophies of profit over life of oil over land of kind of you know and and the the philosophies of racism that have partly brought us into this place and the philosophy that 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 the the earth the natural world is is dead and ours neither of these things are true yeah i'm with, I'm with you and i'm i think that's what, what this conversation what we're doing now i mean it's part of that fight you know what i mean it's yes. i think yes. this whole conference is part of that fight i think there's exactly diff- many different battles going on did you when you were um sort of um interacting with these cultures did you have to the pro, I would love to just for you to see, how did you sort of fluctuate your perception of seeing because how did I fluctuate your perception of seeing and what, I'll try to explain what I mean by that you must have because as Westerners we have a our perception the way we see the world is very infiltrated by many different mechanisms and as you will know obviously many different indigenous cultures everyone explains how they have a complete different lens of reality the way mm-hmm. they see certain things did you have to sort did you did you find it a struggle to try and step into the minds of the indigenous cultures to really get a, a grasp of what they were sort of seeing through their own eyes in in some ways i think i'd have to be humble and say i don't know that i ever did because mm-hmm. you know because because um I'm so steeped in my own culture, and also because I need to say there are so many aspects of my own culture that that I am absolutely um, kind of 
effervescently in love with of like literature and music and poetry and uh, the, you know the, the, these things that our culture has produced are, are utterly magnificent um, so I, I don't know that I ever could really but it was also that um, I never wanted to you know to try to sort of um, act like somebody I wasn't I never wanted to try to kind of um, pretend I was somebody that I wasn't that um, but that in a sense the the relationship between the human being and the living world that indigenous cultures even though they've been so crushed so often still honor um, that's so normal it's it's so utterly um, right this is how could it be otherwise than to say this earth is where we came from and it's where we're going it is it's sacredness is inviolable and it's unarguable and so in a way um, the shock quite often for me was the coming back and the sense of you know of um, reading newspapers that were full of such utter drivel and a kind of killing drivel because of all that they don't say all that they don't report on I mean I'm with you I mean I'm, I'm completely with you I mean even just the sense of I mean going to a, I mean people who's done a bit of traveling themselves the way the media perceives certain cultures and certain countries they have this fear be a stigmatized um, sort of perspective on that culture and you go there yourself and you go look around you're like what What's going? This isn't. This is not what I've been told. The stories, the narratives I've been told all throughout my life. So I definitely get that. And another area, just to switch it up, switch it up a bit, was um, I know in one of your books as well, uh, in particular, where you talked about how indigenous cultures perceive time. Yes. I would love for you to speak upon that. Why did you choose to sort of dive into that topic? Because for me, that's that's something that I've thought about as well a lot. What it was was um, um. I spent a lot of time on the road protests in the 90s and this t one of the tiny, tiny things that really got into my brain about it was that um, so much of unutterably beautiful landscape in England um, around Newbury was going to be wrecked forever for the sake of car drivers having... 50 minutes less time in their cars and the the cruelty and the stupidity of that it really hurt me and so I was thinking about speed and um and how speed has got a deeply horribly political kind of shadow um and is so destructive and I was commissioned to write a piece for the Guardian about speed and then they liked that so they asked me to write a series about time and what I thought was well actually when you think about the future and how the future is being treated, this is really political. If you think about the past and kind of, you know, that one of the things that, that our dominant culture thinks that the past, that time runs in a straight line and the past is behind us and it is dead. And what for a lot of indigenous cultures, like, you know, indigenous Australians say the past is under our feet. It is alive and it is under our feet. And that, um, 
you know, that sense, I know a lot of people talk about the the dream time as if it was a kind of sense of, you know, the ancestor in the past, but actually more appropriately, um, as I understand it, and obviously, I don't, as I said, I don't want to say that I'm speaking for anyone, but that it is a surround, it's something that surrounds us, it's a mythical present, um, which is sustained by ritual in this world, but it actually, can, in you know, in, in the apparent world, but it's around us all the time. And that sense of kind of, you know, so that, that, um, that the past is a political thing, the future is a political thing. The whole idea of progress, you know, that one of the things that um, that I was told by this Maori man that I spoke to, who said, "Your progress is not our progress." So simple and so profound is that the, that in the dominant culture we have won a lot of technological progress by forcing the losses on the majority world. So progress is a deeply political thing. How we treat nature is a, is a deeply political thing. Um, the the sense of um, time and women, this is very political, is that women's experience of time is very different from men's. Um, and so all of this kind of thing, and, and, not, and part of that is, you know, the cyclical thing of, you know, women's cycles. But it's also that, um, that women's work has been... Um, often treated as all the work that is repetitive that has to be done and redone and redone um as i think it was dorothy parker said you know she said i hate housework you make the beds you do the dishes and six months later you have to do it all again yeah. but that sense of like the washing up every day cooking the dinner every day and then it disappears the work is gone it's invisible whereas that thing of kind of um more typically men's work is um for a lasting monument um, it's for something that 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 stays over time. Um, so so I got very interested in that sense that 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 however you look at it, time, it's very political. And when I started researching it, I thought surely somebody must have written about the politics of time. Somebody because it's so obvious. And then I looked and I saw people had written about the politics of speed and the politics of progress but not the whole thing. So I thought, wow, uh, this is great. I'm off on this one. And kind of, you know, so that's that was how I moved into that book. Is it is it also true as well? I, I think Bruce Parry mentioned this about how, and I would love to see how your thoughts on this, how you sort of encountered this, but is it true that some cultures' language, the language around how they how they sort of speak about time is, is, is a lot different to what we see Yes, it can be. I mean, there's 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 one example um, in the Amazon where um, they don't use tenses as we use tenses. That um, um, that things can't be seen to be about to happen or to have happened. It's like a kind of constant present. But I'm not an expert on that, so I I wouldn't want to speak beyond my knowledge. Is there anything else? Is there anything on the topic of? time is there anything else fascinating that you learn from from that sort of and they said the word from the time learning from the time learning yeah. but from the 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 journey of discovering uh, analyzing the concept of time within cultures um i think that feeling that um we own our own time that gives us an absolutely extraordinary sense of autonomy and self-direction. Um, that when I when I was in the Amazon, I talked to 
a Harakan book man called Tarzan, actually, who'd never seen a Tarzan film in his life. <laughs> it was a nickname given to him by the loggers, actually. And, um, and he said, when the Spanish came, we learned time and money and work. Um, and it's pretty devastating because it was an imposition, you know, as the dominant culture invaded lands, it also invaded times. Um, and it imposed this sense of a nine-to-five job, of um, 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 the, um, the sense that your time does not belong to you or indeed to the natural world, that your time belongs to this machine of capitalism, of profit before anything. That would have completely, I'm just trying to analyse that as well within them, that must have completely changed their whole perception of reality. Yeah. And the whole did you get a sense from that that they they when when that transition happened there maybe their whole something within them changed the way they see the world or something Well I think it was I mean it was it's part of our imperialism it's part of the imperialism of the dominant culture was that we imposed empires of time yes and and they suffer it but actually in this in a kind of more personal way in a lasting way I think that that um that if you've been enculturated, as I have been, into that sort of Protestant work ethic, it's um, it is hugely liberating to try to kind of say, okay, I choose my hours. I mean, I I work for myself, so in a way that's really easy. But actually, to you know, to 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 really um, inhabit that sense that the idea for all of us, all of us, that our time belongs to somebody else, is a hideous theft. I think as well, it's actually, I mean, you might have experienced this when you were immersed in the culture itself for, say, a long period of time. Did you did you feel like your, your own senses within your side yourself were adapting to their, to their way of seeing time? Because I, I I time obviously is senses as well. You, you, yes. If you're looking at the clock, you neglect your own internal senses yes. that these cultures have. Yes. I mean, I think I learned some pretty steep lessons. I mean, one of the funniest ones was um, um, I spent some time with Karen people in Thailand and they told me at one point that there was going to be a wedding um, a few days ahead and I said oh when's it going to happen like thinking stupidly kind of they were what were they going to say like 11 o'clock on Saturday you know and um, and they just looked at me like I was a total idiot of like well, it'll happen when everyone's ready of course you know because that sense of kind of social grace that you can have within a community that doesn't feel that it's under the um, um, under the hammer of clock time um, and so what so my question was utterly foolish and it was very powerful as a lesson to kind of think, oh, of course, it'll happen when the time is right, when the time is ripe. You know, that beautiful phrase we have in English, that the time is ripe. It's like, you know, it's come to its own fruition. It's not dictated from the outside. It grows like an apple just ripening. Yeah, I love that. It's beautiful, honestly. And um, if you could, I mean, through all this, through the books that you've wrote and obviously all this sort of this great exploring that you've done, if you could sort of, if you, if you could have sort of one one sort of key message that all this sort of this body of work transitions over to Monday society, what what would that message be? To rebel against the extinctions, all of them, 
every single one of them. There's nothing more important at the moment. That's how I feel, because we know that we're in a sense of crisis. And I've seen so many, you know, from the freedom fighters of West Papua, the road protests in in Britain, the kind of, you know, decades of politely trying to say this isn't good enough. And actually now, I, I you know, I, I think with Extinction Rebellion, it's opened up a possibility. And the time that we have is very short. And I feel absolutely passionately that how they've designed it, or we have designed it, and spread it and thought it through, to say that it starts with telling the truth, and that that includes reparations to history, but mainly it's like the absolute crisis of now that we, you know, and that we have, we as people, we have the right to be told the truth about the nature and the speed and the and the colossus of the of, of this crisis, and we have a chance. And you know, and and I also feel like it's we don't have time to be cynical because I know some people kind of think, oh, extinction rebellion is just blah blah blah, whatever criticisms they have. Okay, there may be criticisms, and actually at the moment I feel like I don't care. We haven't got time to be cynical. It's the best we've had. It's the best we've got at the moment. Let's put ourselves behind it. Yeah, I love that. What a powerful message. And honestly, such an honor to have a conversation with you. Really powerful. And I know for I know one million percent that the stories and the journeys are definitely going to leave a lasting impact on many people who are watching and listening. So thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you very, very really much. Really cool. Thank much you. appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what a cool conversation that was. I really loved sitting down and chatting to Jay. And like I mentioned in the intro, this one really was a struggle to make this one happen. So I'm so glad it did unfold the way it did and we and I got to sit down with her. It might not have been a very long podcast, but it was definitely a powerful one and one that I was really grateful to share with you all because I think her journeys that she learned from her seven years among the indigenous cultures and also the the all the sort of the intricate lessons that she learned especially in regards to um the lessons that she learned about how indigenous cultures perceive time i thought that was a really fascinating topic and who knows now i've got contact with jay in the future we would definitely i would definitely sort of i'm going to try in the future to, to to sort of do a podcast and hang out with her again maybe have a bit more time dive into some things that i never got around to and didn't have time to do but anyway, I feel that that was definitely going to, that podcast for me, I don't know about you guys, let let us know what you think, but it's definitely for me going to go down as one of them podcasts that I'll always remember having the time to sit down with Jay. So I hope you enjoyed it anyway. If you want to support the podcast, please check out the Patreon page. It really is the best way to support the podcast. There's a, there's um. There's a few guy there's a few of you guys on there who have been patrons for such a long time and it really means a lot and even just the price of two dollars a month it really does go such a long way guys. It helps me to keep doing what I'm doing, traveling around and doing all these podcasts. It just really gives me a foundation to keep bringing you the most amazing conversations that I can. So thank you so much for that. And also as well, like I mentioned in the intro, please check out the Send Podcast Retreat. It really is going to be an awesome experience. One that I know if you do, it'll be an experience of a lifetime. There's going to be so much going on there. And if you want to check that out, all you need to do is go over to the Send Podcast website. All the details about all the different things and all the finer details are on there. 
So anyway, just to play this podcast out as I always do, this song is really a powerful one. I played this a while ago, I think. It was maybe on an episode that I did of Observing Me Thought ages ago. But this is basically a song, one of my favourite songs, if not the fav- my favourite song of all time. It's by an artist called Nako Bear. And the song is called Medicine for the People. It's a powerful one. It really is. So enjoy this song by Nako Bear, Medicine for the People. And I will catch you next week as always where I have another powerful podcast. So anyway, wherever you are in the world, keep seeking people. Peace out. Lend your ears, lend your hands, lend your movement, anything you can. Come to teach, come to be taught, come in the likeness in the image of God. Cause you can be like that, with all that humbleness and all that respect. All of the power invested in me. Beat hard to love my enemies All of the black bags over the heads of the dead and dying The more I understand about the human race The less I comprehend about our purpose and place And maybe if there was a clearer line The curiosity would satisfy Time-based prophecies that kept me from living In the moment I'm struggling to trust the divinity Of all the gods And what the hell they have planned for us I cry for the creatures who get left behind But everything will change in the blink of an eye And if you wish to survive You will find the guide inside Choppy waves, the feelings and the places and the seasons change, the galaxies remain, energy fields pulling about into space, the angels that are coupled in the spiritual waste, the hate that gets me just with my spiritual pace, tenfold the mana when the planets are in place and polar alignment. We're on assignment, bodies on consignment, return them to the circus, and what is the purpose? What is the purpose? And would you believe it? Would you believe it if you knew what you were for? And how you became so informed? Bodies of info performing such miracles. I am a miracle made up of particles. And in this existence, I'll stay persistent. Aloha, aloha, keakua, keakua, aloha, aloha, kuleana.
praise Each day that I wake I give thanks, I give thanks Each day that I wake I will praise, I will praise Each day that I wake I give thanks, I give thanks And the day that I do wake up and transcend holy makeup, I am capable, I am powerful. The day that I do wake up and transcend holy makeup, I am on my way to a different place. Oh, uh-huh. 
harder, wake up and transcend the holy makeup. I am capable. That's right. I'm powerful. The day that I don't wake up and transcend the holy makeup, I am on my way to a different Aloha, aloha, kulei.